As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Are you tired of the endless stream of fantasy marketing and vanity metrics? Yeah, so am I. My name is James Patrick, and I'm an internationally published photographer, media specialist, and marketing strategist. I'm also a student of professional development, and like you, I've been left frustrated by all of this influencer-driven generic advice making us think that we are just one course, conference, or manifestation away from the life of our dreams. We need to cut through this crap and move beyond the posturing, beyond the facade, beyond the image to take real action on the real work that will create the real results. This is the Beyond the Image podcast. My guest today, you'll recognize from the hit TV show, Restaurant Impossible. He's also the author of the brand new book, Overcoming Impossible, Chef Robert Irvine. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, James. Welcome. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we can have this conversation. I, I, I had a chance to pour through your book. I got through it uh, in, in, in a day. It was uh, absolutely uh, so much that, that I want to dive into because there were just so many things that, that I really feel simpatico about. But uh, to start off, one of the things I notice is this is your fifth book. And your first four books, you focus more on food, uh, culinary. What was the inspiration behind trying to uh, then pivot from that and dive into business and career and personal development. Well, it's interesting. Um, it's actually the sixth book. Sixth book, okay. Yeah, this is a sixth book. Um, and why did I change direction? Uh, every week on Restaurant Impossible, we get 2,000 applications. They whittle it down to five, and then we pick one. The network picks one. And over the last 13 years we've helped 350 restaurants. Uh, but in my real world, I helped Fortune 500 companies uh, also. Um, so I wanted to continue the help of, of people. And, and I loved the opening of your show where it says, you know, cut through all this BS of stuff and, and you're one dream away because we're never one dream away. We never will be. You know, um, this book is about sharing the failures that I have had the wins or the L's and, and the, uh, the W's that I've had and really diving into to how I failed, why I failed and, and why I see so many other businesses fail. Um, and the book is really just to help you or give you an idea. It's not a, it's not a tough read. It's very simple, but very educational. And I hope you thought so. But um, and that's why I got into it. I didn't want another cookbook. I didn't want a fitness book. I wanted something that could actually help people and understand why I've been successful and how many failures I've actually had. 
That's actually such an interesting point because, I mean, even in the title, you're trying to normalize failure. And the idea of failure, at least the fear of failure, is such a paralyzing phase for so many entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs that prevents them from ever even getting into motion. And so easy for someone on the outside looking in to say, well, you know, he's the host of this hit TV show. He's written six books. I mean, he can't go wrong. And the fact that you're pointing out both the wins you've had, but really the losses you've had and the lessons you've learned from it, it kind of helps normalize it for, for the reader. Yeah. I, I feel that, you know, we look from, from when we we're born, we get into this cycle of life where, um, I feel that we are expected to be the best at what we can be. And we all want a trophy, right? And I am not a big lover of every kid gets a trophy. Every kid gets a pat on the back. And look, I have two daughters. One is a doctor now. One is a lawyer at 24 and 22 because I push them. Um, and it's okay to fail. And, it, and, and it, we have to normalize failure to the point that Guys, it's going to happen. But what you do with that failure is the key to your success or your continued failure. Allowing allowing uh, your kids and allowing you to realize that not everything's going to be a hit. Not everything's good. Think about how many songs an artist sings before they may get a number one hit. And some don't even get that in their lifetime. Um, so we're lucky to to be able to make a win or, or whatever uh, through this life. And I think that the book was about, look, I started companies, they failed miserably. I had to sell, you know, a, a third of the price to make the money. And all these things that have happened to me that have put me in the position, yes, hit TV show, uh, 11 companies, 5,000 employees, six books. But what about all the other stuff that you don't know that I tried to failed? <laughs> I, I look at it where I'm a photographer. Um, and I, most of my work is shooting magazine covers. I, I go into a magazine cover shoot. I'm taking one final image that's going to end up on that cover. But to get that one image, I have to go through 900 or so failures, shots that right. didn't make it. And that if I were just to look at all those shots that didn't make it, yeah, my career would be quite a miserable failure. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the thing that did work. And I think that's 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 really what you're pointing out. Yeah, for sure. And there's been a few of them, luckily. Um, but again, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, photography and food and art are all the same in, in that. There's a critical eye in each one of them. But if, if the, the one ingredient of that recipe is not in there, it, the magic doesn't happen. The color or the lighting isn't correct on the, on the, the photography or the image that you're trying to capture or that, that whatever it is. And the same with art. If, if it's a moody day and rainy day, an artist, just like a chef and, and, and I'm sure like a photographer, we, we shoot differently, we cook differently and we paint differently. And it just happens that all the stars align and boom, there it is success. That one picture, that one recipe, uh, uh, that one, that one uh, painting. One of the things I find so fascinating about this book and then as it relates to your show was it would have been so easy for you to do a show that just focused on the culinary aspect of running a restaurant 
business and you could go in there and, and, and you do on the shows where you show, no, this is how you, this is how you actually need to cook a burger or a chicken sandwich or whatever, whatever it is. But then you actually focus so much, not just on the business, but the person running the business uh, with, with this understanding that, it, Hey, all the, all the sales strategy and marketing and branding, it can't fix a broken entrepreneur. What was that inspiration moment that you realized that, Oh no! I can actually serve more than just what's on the menu. It, it that's a great question because years this show has been on the air for thirteen years now, and when we first started, I never forget it. I wrote it. Um, I wrote the the treatment for the show, and it was a twenty two minute show, and we were going to go in there and, and and rip up carpets and and put new tables and all those kind of things, and the first episode in New Jersey, um, I come across this kind of crazy guy who wanted the president of the United States to come to dinner, you know, all those kind of things that are never going to happen, right? His mom and dad owned the restaurant, but he, his mom and dad rolled her, but he took the restaurant and his brother. And for whatever reason, it failed miserably because it was egotistical about him. And he wasn't listening to people. And it was so funny because when I put all the staff together and it was, it was not a planned moment. It was just a, um, a, an organic moment. And they started to paint a picture of the, the person that was stood in front of me that I had no idea who was. So I started to dig, you know, you pick the scab and, and, and see what comes out. And uh, it turned into this amazing show that went from 22 minutes to 44 minutes uh, and it was all personality driven about the people that lead their teams or don't lead their teams that have egos or don't uh, and don't, don't trust people. And that's the, the process of the book. And that's that moment. And that was 13 years ago, almost 14 years ago. I'm like, guys, it's not about the restaurant. It's not about the business. It's about the people. And it was like a eureka moment because I was there to, to, to fix a restaurant. And regardless of what you said as the restaurant owner, I don't care. I didn't care because I'm going to fix it the way I know how to fix things because I'm a military guy and this is what we do. And it, and it took, you know, um, a while to figure out it was about people, but it was that show that was like, oh, we, we need to pivot here. We need to, we need to look at the, the relationships and how and why and what the visions were when they got into that business. You write a lot about ego in in the book and the the role ego plays both as a as a motivator as well as a an obstacle that that we have to deal with. I, this this question uh, occurred to my wife and I as we were talking about your book. Have you found ego impacting someone's ability to learn how to be a better chef, or their ego impacting their ability to be a better leader? Both. So, so I said at the beginning, I take care of restaurants. Um, I have my own restaurants and, and businesses, but I also consult for major Fortune 500 companies. Um, and we all know the name, brand names. Um, I find that if you have a CEO who is very insecure or a chef, it can be either or, right? Because the chef runs the back. And if the food's good, people come. Even if it's not that good a service, people will still come because the food is great. Mm-hmm. On the reverse, the server can't save the bad food and a CEO can't uh, um, save bad service because we tend to hire people that are that are what we think are, are lesser than we are, 
right? We don't surround ourselves with with greater people because insecure CEOs or chefs want always to be the right person. They want to be uh, in control and, and, and my way or the highway. And I can tell you that because I was that way 10 years ago when I, when I first started. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a while to, and, and if you see that it says lose your ego and their ego, uh, that was based on me. Because 10 years ago, I was the guy that said, no, we're doing it this way, regardless of, of what you thought. Uh, even though you may have been in the trenches and, and seen the people or dealing with an instance at, at every day of your life, that's not how I want to deal with it. And it took me a while to put that aside and listen. And it cost me a lot of money, by the way, because I failed miserably at listening to the people, A, that I was working for, and B, that people were working with me, my own teams. Uh, and I think, I think that ego uh, fails major companies to this day, and I can name them, I won't, but... Um, you know, once you get power, there it's, it's like sitting somebody in a in a cash booth on a on a on a freeway, right? That guy could have a PhD in 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 anything else, right? But he's there at that moment in time because he needs that job to catch to to, to pay his bills. Next week, he could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Just it's it's a sequence of moments. Yet, how I treat that person. And how I see that person going up in a business is how uh, I see them coming down the other way. Yeah, and I, and I, I feel that we, we, so, we, we are such a society of instant gratification and judgment that we don't think like that. I, I learned so much from people on the street, uh, um, somebody sweeping the street, somebody with a, a garbage hauler, somebody with a, you know, there, there's so many lessons. But 10 years ago, I didn't see those lessons. One of the things that I appreciated about this book was that you led in with the importance of leadership, which I feel a lot of entrepreneurial books might put as an appendix. You know, this is, well, here's how you develop a business. And then, oh, at the end, we're going to tell you how to actually lead the business. And, and you flip that and says, no, this is how we lead first. And then then I'll teach you about scale and and and, and business development and, and selling. What must an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur do to cultivate that inner accountability, both for themselves, as well as the accountability that they're going to hold their teams to? Well, it's funny because first and foremost, you know, Matt Tuthill, who is my, my co-author, who, who writes my words beautifully, I might say, and has done for the last however many books uh, that we've done together. Um, when I asked him to write this book and said, look, we need to do a business book. He had no idea an, an amazing magazine editor and, and everything else. We had no idea where to go. And my military service is, is something that I, I harp on all the time. And leadership being, you know, I use this example, um, Iwo Jima. When you were trying to take that last pillbox in Iwo Jima, what made the Marines follow their leader, right? With bullets flying, flamethrowers going, um, bombs hitting, why does a Marine, or why did the Marines at that point, and one of them, a very dear close friend of mine who passed away um, at 96 years old, I ask him the same question, why did you keep going? Because you believe in the leadership that's telling you to go, 
right? You know that you look to your left, you look to your right, you look to your front, you look to your back. These people that you're walking up that that mountain or that hill with are going to save you, or at least you feel they are, right? We can't stop death if it's coming, right? But the, the leadership of somebody saying, okay, guys, I'm going to be right up the front. I'm going to be doing everything with you. I'm going to set the expectation. Here's the mission. I'm going to hold you accountable for everything we do together, right? An empathetic leadership is listening to people. Again, I go back to what I just said, is listening to people that are trying to make it better for you, but you won't allow them because your ego gets in the way. And I feel that the leadership is a number one failure in every business, regardless. Because if you if you don't set the expectations and you don't set the vision and allow people to voice an opinion and then go away and do what they feel the steps are to get to that vision and let them fail and hold them accountable, then you will never have a successful team or business there will be you with a vision that fails all the time because we don't allow um, our people to 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 nurture that that vision through leadership. And look, if you look at the WalMarts of the world, the American Airlines, the the Southwest, you know, look at these teams or look at our military because that's what I base a lot of my my understanding of, of business on. Is look a general sits with a, a plan of attack. You don't see a general on the front line putting bullets in a, in a weapon and shooting it, although they could, but you don't. Why? Because they're, they're the important strategists of where we're going. The, the military uses NCOs, middle management, which, which non-commissioned officers, which, which to us are the backbone of our military across um, the world. And if you look at any company, Fortune 500 or less, that's run by a former military guy, you'll see it. That's exactly how they set up their companies. It's really interesting to watch. Just like the brigade system in a kitchen was built by a scoffier, there was a head chef, there was a saucier, entremetier, a, 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 a fish guy, a vegetable guy, you know, and they all reported up. And, mm. and I think that's what leadership is setting goals and expectations and visions, delegating, holding accountable, but, but also giving the tools to be able to do that job. It's no good me giving a soldier a weapon without bullets. It doesn't work, right? What are you going to do, club, club people to death? It doesn't work. A writer without a pen or a pencil, you know, an artist without a brush, a photographer without a camera, you know. It, it makes me laugh, but I go into these companies and I, I see the their expectations of their team members and they'll never realize some expectations because they don't give them the tools, the proper tools to be able to do the job. I think there's so much we can learn from how we ourselves have been led and we ourselves have been managed. Cause I guarantee everyone listening to the show has had a boss who was a leader yeah. and we did better work for that, for that individual. We did work that was beyond what we even thought what we were capable of. And, and we've also had bosses who were managers who we did our job description and maybe that was about it. And, you know, I think back to uh, in a former life, I, I worked in professional service marketing. And I mean, we had this amazing leader who just inspired work and our company was white hot in the time that he ran that office. The person after him was a manager and we lost something like 60% of our workforce in the time that this other individual was was at the helm because there was not that vision there was not that inspiration there was not that guidance there was not that gathering of of a focused goal 
of what we are trying to do. So I, I love that that you laid, laid it out that way. Um, I noticed some fascinating parallels between the restaurant industry, uh, which which you use as an example throughout the book, even though this is not a, a restaurant book, but it is used kind of as a as as a um, as a guide to so much in entrepreneurship. And in in a section, you talk about problems that that restaurants have when especially when they're trying to to grow or trying to scale you mentioned that well their menus might be too big i know this with entrepreneurs all the time where they're offering way too many services or lack of preparation they're not they're not even writing down their recipes well i see this with entrepreneurs who aren't even cataloging their systems or their standard operating procedures and what this ends up being is this this belief of this methodology that in order to scale in order to grow that we just have to work more hours that we just have to burn the candle at both ends. So we just have to put in so much more and we're already putting in so much that we just think, well, scaling is not possible. So what is your advice on how we start to scale without all these endless hours that we don't even see as a possibility? It's actually funny, uh, James, because I talk about um, a recipe on scaling, right? So there's a lemon poppy seed recipe in there, right? We talk about pancakes for a while. Mm-hmm. And it says it's great if James and I are having a breakfast together because, you know, here's a recipe for success for James and I to eat pancakes. But if we have two more people join and four more people, we can't just keep doubling the recipe and expecting it to be the same, right? The gluten changes, the liquid changes, the flour absorbs less or more, all those kind of things. And that's what scaling is, right? You build um a business ready to be the biggest business or the biggest company you think that can be. And and I give you an example of that. When I, when I started fit crunch eight years ago, uh, they said to me, Oh, you can't make a a protein bar that's baked. It's impossible. And I said, Oh, great. So that means we're going to do it. So what did that mean? I put baking ovens at the end of a, a, a line and I brought bakers in to make little cookies and at six o'clock to make cookies by seven o'clock, uh, 72 people on three lines would build protein bars. We'd coat them in chocolate. We'd put them through a, a tunnel and then package them. So that was eight years ago. We did uh, 76 or 78,000 bars a day. We now do 300,000 bars an hour. Wow. Right? Um, I built that to scale. And and one of the things that we put in place, and, and I'm so glad you mentioned it, SOP, Standing Operating Procedures, for everything that goes on in, in, um, in, we have two plants there, but we also have a distillery and we have, so there are, there are expectations, there are standard operating procedures. You do this, you, you know, you clean this, you do this, we make this, you bottle it. Um, for every, for every action, there is a piece of paper to tell you what to do. Uh, why is that? Because I'm not that smart. You know, I, I got a thousand things on my brain. And when I come home from, uh, I go to work from home, I've got my wife, my kids on my brain, and I start to become complacent. So therefore, then the the continuous bottle rattling and all those things that hypnotize us, we forget what we do. I'm giving you right there. It says, James, this is what you're going to do. And this is what you check every 10 bottles, every six bottles, regardless of whether there's a metal detector or a wrapper or whatever. And I think uh, scaling businesses, I started at the beginning, not in the middle. It's too late then. You've already you've already shot the horse right then, right? 
um, it, depending on whatever is shoes or fuel or, or, or clothing, and we have all of those things, you have to build it as though tomorrow you're going to be doing 600,000 bars and $260 million a year. And it only comes with operating procedures, um, which are set at the beginning and the plant focus and mentality and, and vision is there. Otherwise it never works. It, it is such a important discipline that uh, we've had to do within our own businesses, which is catalog every single step, even as, as minute as it is, because those steps become job descriptions. Yep. That is precisely how we, we onboard people into the team and, and show them what to do is by cataloging and detailing all these things. Um, my favorite sentence that you had in the book was, I don't make decisions based on emotion. I make decisions based on math. The balance sheet doesn't lie to you. This really struck a chord with me. I've been running businesses for 20 years and, and uh, work, work in businesses both as an entrepreneur and as in, in a partnership. And it's so easy to allow emotion to control the steering wheel a bit. Uh, and it's required a lot of work and exercise to put emotion to the side and look at the sheer facts of the matter. What advice would you give on how we can train ourselves to actually look at things objectively so that we're looking and basing our decisions off the math, not how we feel about the math? It's interesting because on Restaurant Impossible, and I use that a lot, is look, when you show me a profit and loss statement, I'll tell you how good you are, right? Because numbers never lie because that's how we call Al Capone. That's how we catch anybody you want. Just follow the money. You'll know exactly where it is. And if you notice, that's the first thing I ask for. Um, there are, there's one James, there's one Robert. Our earning potential in the hours of the day is X amount. Whatever you charge per hour, there's only so many hours in a day we can work. And then there's work afterwards, right? So you take a picture, you have to develop it, you have to do all the things that you do. And, and excuse me, I don't know all those technical things. But the same thing happens with me. I, I always say this, when I interview people, I ask them, what is the value of their time per eight hours? And it's so funny, because people look baffled at me and say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, okay, what are you worth for eight hours of work? Or an hour, give me an hour, and we'll just multiply it, right? Uh, and it's so interesting that people don't know what their self-worth or their value is because that's what builds the company. Regardless of what the job position is, I want to be paid $100,000 a day. Am I ever going to get there? Maybe, right? But that's what I feel I'm worth. I have a self-worth. It could be $10,000 a day. It doesn't matter. It could be $100. It doesn't matter what it is. But that tells me how you value yourself. And when we create businesses... We have to create the team around us that are better than us, that have a vision like us, like-minded people, um, that I can say, okay, look, all right, today we've got 500 Roberts out there doing their own things, being guided by one vision and reporting up to say, look, instead of making 10,000, we've made you know 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 because we're scaling it. And it's surrounding yourself with people um, that they're okay with systems, but they're all okay, they're also okay. And this is something that, that I'm very passionate about to say, Hey, Robert, that system's great. But you know, I was at Mr. Smith's door the other day 
And I had to bend the system to create this and look at what it, it, it turned out better for us. What do you think? And I've got to be okay to say, wow, I didn't even think about that. Why didn't I think about that? What a great idea. Get the team together. Let's discuss it. Is there a change? Can we change that to make it better? Because if it worked for you, it's going to work for somebody else. And I always say salesmen, because um, I deal with some major companies in sales. And, and every time I go to sales conference, and I ask this question, when was the last time you sat down and had a cup of coffee with somebody? It's like a date. You know, you, you get to know them and what their needs are before you try and sell them something they don't want. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I feel... I get that every week for me. People come to me, oh, you need this, you need this. No, I don't need that. But this is what I do need. Can you help me do this? You know, better packaging, better boxing, better uh, uh, prices on whey, better prices on, on, on pork, you know, all those kind of things that, you know, that make our jobs difficult because the profit and loss is based on if I'm doing something for the military, they say, this is our top price. This is our mid price. This is our bottom price. You come in, but this is what we want, the quality of the product. And it's no different to a Walmart, to a Costco, to a, right? They've got to make money on top of my money. Mm -hmm. So so there, there are systems in there without dropping quality that, um, that you can put in there. And it's amazing. And again, I go back to 10 years ago. I used to lay in bed and come up with ideas to sell food products uh, to major retailers. And I'm talking, we have 95,000 retail locations that carry my products. And I would think, oh, let's do a pizza. So I get up in the morning, I call my COO, I say, we're going to do pizza. Let's find a pizza uh, guy who can make pizza. So minimum run, 100,000 units. Well, now I got to sell that. So, so I would do that for 10 or 12 products every day. And maybe eight of those products were made until one day, I made a, 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 I never forget it. it, was a big failure for me, an iced tea. It was a sports iced tea. Hmm. I went in, the product was amazing, but I went in at too high a price and I ended up pretty much giving away 100,000 units because nobody would pay that price. So then I started to say, well, instead of me just thinking about products, let's just ask the, the people that sell the product, what are they looking for? <laughs> instead of me trying to, you know, write 20 things and do 20 things. What are you looking for, Mr. Mr. Walmart, Mr. Albertsons, Mr. Publix, Mr. Uh, and then work on it that way. And wow, what a, what a change. <laughs> they actually tell you. Yeah. I want this reproduced for less money. Or I don't care about the money at the moment. Give me a quality product. And by the way, there's a million pounds a week there of that product. I'm like, wow, that's how it works. <laughs> And it becomes so much easier to sell something when uh, your consumer is telling you, this is exactly what I want. Yeah. I, I, it's, I, isn't it? I laugh. I'm laughing because it's a real laugh because that's what happened. And I'm like, my God, why, why am I so dumb? Why am I so silly? I'm trying to reinvent the wheel when they're telling me what they want. I think not realizing how simple it is to create an opportunity for a sale is one of the reasons that sales is so stressful and, 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 and scary for so many entrepreneurs. But what you said right there is like your customers or your prospective clients are telling you what they want. You just have to be able to listen to them. But we've been so used, James, to, to 
trying to sell something to somebody that they don't want, right? Mm-hmm. So let me use an example, uh, technology. So we need a point of sale because it's the easiest way to track. I used to, I did a show, Restaurant Possible in New Jersey. The guy had a restaurant, bowling alley and bar, Paul's Bowling, uh, Paul's bowling and Bar. It's out of business now. Um, and I'll tell you why, because they knocked it down. They paid him, it's a high rise tower there right now, but paid him a lot of money for it, by the way. But for 50 years, he was counting money on an abacus, even till last year, right? Wow. And I said, so what are you selling the most of? And he says, well, um, I don't know, but you know, I'm, I, I'm spending this much money on food. His food cost was like 96, 97%, something like that, making no money in a little, in a little restaurant. But the bar was, was particularly um, busy and he made his money because you had to spend 25 years to be able to get a seat at the bar all the way up to 50 years. And they're the only people who could sit around the bar. That was it. He was doing somewhere in the region of, uh, at his heyday, two and a half million dollars a year in, in beverage, then lost everything, right? Because it was place, it was dirty, it was uh, whatever. And I redid it. Um, the bowling lanes, he had three, two bowling lanes. And I said to him, look, uh, do you have a phone? No. Do you have a, an iPad? No. Do you have a, a Wi-Fi? No. Well, why not? You know, and I literally stripped it out. I brought um, Comcast, NBC in and said, I need, I need this, 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 all to the, to the vein of they pulled it down uh, last year after me doing it six years ago, made a lot of money there, by the way. And then he got paid a lot of money for the land and they demolished it, right? So it, it's just interesting to me. And somebody tried to sell this guy technology, but tried to sell him something he didn't want, hmm. not what he needed. And I think that's the biggest thing with sales folks. And you, and you just repeated what I said, listen to them and they'll tell you they want faster this, they need faster internet, need a, um, a dedicated line for the back office, they need dedicated for the front, they need whatever it is they need, um, give it to them. Uh, and we're doing the same thing with the military right now, right? We don't have cooks. So, so let's give them a value added product that they boil in the bag and open up and it's, it's like a five-star restaurant. You've got to listen. Yeah. One more question for you. You obviously do so much between uh, the show, the books, uh, speaking engagements, uh, owning numerous uh, product-based businesses and and consulting services. This doesn't happen without habits, without habits on how you operate yourself, how you operate your day. Uh, I'd love for you to shed some light on habits that you feel are just non-negotiable for you as an entrepreneur and you as a leader? So we have, we have very unique um, contracts, right? So um, one rule I have with my senior leaders, and I have 47 senior leaders um, of, of different siloed businesses. Um, if I call you, you have 15 minutes to return my call. Day, night, West Coast, East Coast. I could be in Afghanistan, Iraq, Poland, Spain. It doesn't matter. You have 15 minutes. Why do I have that? Because I have to react quickly to an ever-changing um, landscape of, of business. So I could be getting food to Korea, to Poland. I'll be in Poland next week. We've got 28,000 troops there. So I have to react really quickly. So what I, don't, what I don't do is tell you how many hours to work, how many vacations days to take, how many holidays, whatever days you want, whenever you want to go on vacation, 
I have no problem you going. Just make sure that somebody has backed you up on the, on the decisions. So when I call, I have that decision. And I feel that that autonomous relationship of trust, and it is, because I'm dealing with with big companies and big militaries around the world and, and warships and, and carriers and all those kind of things. I don't have the, the luxury of saying, um, oh, well, Mr. Secretary of Defense or Mr. Captain or Mr. President or Mr. You know, whatever. I've got to have an answer for you. And, I, and, and you may have to make a split second decision based on the answer I give you. And that's a true statement. How do I put food, uh, you know, on the water that takes eight weeks to get to Iraq and Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. I'm still feeding troops, right? So I have to be able to trust those folks to be able to know that they take the business as serious as I do, A, because they have a piece of that business, but also because you care about what we do. Um, so I, I think the the trust for me is impeccable and, and knowing the people that are around you and feeling good when you go to bed at night that you've got the best possible team. Uh, and if I'm if I'm out of, you know, I could be in the middle of Syria with a, with a special forces group and out of touch because we can't have phones, then I know that whoever's making that decision has made it as good and has thought through that process as much as I would. You know, and I think the training of that just is no different to you. And I and I I love the, the parallels between you and I because we have the same thing. When you take a picture, there are a certain set of things that you do. When you have a vision, you know what that vision is. And you have to capture that in the lens of a camera and, and project it onto, onto paper, onto a, a billboard, whatever it is. I have the same thing with my businesses, whether it be liquor, whether it be nutrition, whether it be clothing. Um the same kind of thing. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing for me is is trusting the systems I put in place work, and the people that I put in there that I trust. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to leading with accountability. Yeah. So that absolutely comes full circle. Uh, the book, once again, it is Overcoming Impossible by Chef Robert Irvine. Chef, thank you so much for for your time, for being a part of the show. I uh, absolutely uh, delightful conversation and, and truly insightful. And I, I highly encourage all my listeners to be sure to be checking out your book. And it's available wherever books are sold, right? Yes, it's, it's all over the place right now. I just want to say again, you know, the genius writing there is Matt Tuthill, not me. I, I Look, he's taken my lessons and failures and crafted them so it's simple, whether you have a family, whether you're a beginning entrepreneur or you're a, a you know, a budding CEO of a Fortune 500 company. This is teaching you it's okay to fail. Just don't fail at the same thing twice. I love that. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond the Image podcast. Please follow, like, and review wherever you happen to listen to the show. And if you want to connect to me, you can find me at jamespatrick.com, Instagram at jpatrickphoto, or you can text me any of your marketing questions to 480-605-3254. Thanks again.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.